Hope you're enjoying this uh, global warming that we're having. Kind of a nice change of pace weather-wise. Let's uh, take our Bibles, if we could, this morning and open them to the book of Genesis chapter 25 and verse 19. Trying to cover this morning verses 19 through 26 and the title of our message this morning is our our first resort. What should be our first resort as Christians rather than what so many times we treat as our last resort? This uh, study comes up as we're moving verse by verse through the book of Genesis, having completed the life of the patriarch Abraham. If your eyes are really good, you can see the 20 topics that were covered there. And then we move into chapter 25, which we have been studying recently, dealing with some transitional Issues in Genesis as God's redemptive plan keeps moving forward to the point where now Isaac, the son of promise, will be the main featured character. We have seen Abraham's second marriage to Keturah, verses 1 through 6, and the lineage that came from that. We have seen Abraham's death, verses 7 through 11. We then saw um, what became of Ishmael. There's sort of um, a brief digression into Ishmael and his descendants. Um, Ishmael, whom God loved, but Ishmael is not the seed son. So his history is sort of dispensed with very quickly, verses 12 through 18. We know that his descendants, like the descendants of Abraham and Keturah, did not settle in the promised land because the promised land is a land for Isaac and his descendants ultimately. And then Isaac takes center stage. Now, the book of Genesis can be divided up between part 1, chapters 1 through 11, part 2, chapters 12 through 50. Part 1 features four events, creation, fall, flood, national dispersion. Part 2 features four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So it's sort of easy to remember, four and four. And now we're in part two of the book. The story and information and history about Abraham is complete. And now Isaac, the child of promise, moves center stage. And we have now information about the birth of Isaac's two children, Jacob and Esau which we're going to cover today in verses 19 through 26. So there's an outline that we'll be moving through very fast as we look today at the history involving the birth of Jacob and Esau. Notice, if you will, Genesis 25, verse 19. It says, Now these are the records 
of the generations of Isaac. And if you have been tracking with us, you know that this expression here, these are the generations or the record of, is a translation of the Hebrew word toledot, which basically means generations or records. And what we discover is there is a whole record book that Moses relied upon when he put the information about Isaac together. This uh, concept of Toledot, these are the generations of, it's occurred many times so far in our study of the book of Genesis. We've already seen the generations introduction, the generations of the heaven and the earth. Generations of Adam, then Noah, then the sons of Noah, then Shem, then Terah, which was a long Toledot that we were in. And now we are into the generations of Ishmael, covered that last week. And now there's a brand new Toledot, which is the generations of Isaac. And you can see the starting point and stopping point on each Toledot. I mean, what are these? These are basically written records that those that were eyewitnesses and the main characters in the action that we're reading about in Genesis actually compiled. And so the records were then handed to the next person, and he added to the record book. And then they were handed to the next person, and he added more to the record book. And this is how the book of Genesis came into existence through those living at the time explaining what happened. And eventually, all of these records would come into the possession of a man named Jacob, whose birth we're going to see right here in our passage this morning. And in Genesis chapter 46, Jacob is going to leave the land of Canaan and travel to Egypt to find grain in the midst of famine. And that takes place during the Joseph Toledot, or the Joseph story, and when Jacob made that transition from Canaan to Egypt, seeking grain in the midst of famine, he brought with him all of those written records, all of the written records that are divided and outlined here. And all of those records in the providence of time eventually ended up in the hands of a man named Moses. Moses, as you know, was supernaturally set adrift on the Nile. He was sort of rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. And as a baby, he was brought into the Egyptian royal palace. And he was given, at that time period, one of the greatest educations a person could have. That was the outworking of God's purposes for Moses Because it says in Acts 7, verse 22, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. And God arranged events this way so that Moses would be educated. Had he remained a common slave, a common Hebrew slave, that education wouldn't happen. But you see, now Moses is in a position, literarily, to take all of these documents these written records and sort of stitch them together masterfully 
and beautifully into what we now call the book of Genesis. So the book of Genesis did not come into existence because Moses was sort of by himself and God whispered in his ear everything that happened. He was relying very clearly on written records. Now, that is not disturbing because this is how Luke's gospel comes into existence. Luke was not one of the original 12, and Luke himself, when he put together the gospel of Luke, had to rely upon records and eyewitnesses. This is what Luke says at the beginning of his book. He says, as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. He talks there in verse 2 about eyewitnesses and how it seemed fitting for him, Luke says, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Luke, you know, didn't just see a vision from God. He relied upon all of this written records, eyewitness testimonies, the Holy Spirit used his education. Luke was highly educated. He was a physician. And he put all of this material together in what is called the Gospel of Luke. That, in essence, is how the book of Genesis came into existence. All of these written records are handed down, beginning with Adam. They go to Jacob. Jacob takes them to Egypt. Moses is given this phenomenal education in Egypt because God knows what he's going to do through this man, Moses. He's going to pin the book of Genesis, relying upon these written records and sources. And he's going to use Moses as the compiler. It's very different than how the book of Revelation came into existence where John was by himself and saw a vision. And he was told to write it down. A lot of people have the view, well, that's how Genesis came into existence. And no, that's not true. Moses, we believe, relied upon written records, but God supernaturally guided Moses in the compiling process so that God's word could be handed down to us without error. And so when you see there in verse 19, now these are the records of the generations of Isaac. What Moses is saying is here comes the next Toledot, the next section of written records that I'm relying upon to compile the book of Genesis. He goes on in verse 19 and he puts the spotlight on Isaac and he says in verse 19, I, Abraham's son, Abraham became the father of Isaac. So we're now dealing with the line from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. It's very different than the line that we studied last week, which was the line from Abraham to Hagar to Ishmael. The line from Abraham to Hagar to Ishmael, his descendants did not settle in the promised land. But now we're dealing with the seed line from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Isaac being that child of promise that was born supernaturally. And now he becomes the whole focus of attention. As Abraham, the patriarch, is dead and God through his promises to Isaac, is now moving his program forward. 
This, of course, is a big deal because we're going to see the birth of Jacob, and from Jacob is going to come Jacob's dozen, Jacob's twelve sons, one of which is going to be a son named Judah, who became his dozen twelve tribes. One of those tribes is Judah, and from Judah is going to come a very special man named who? Jesus Christ born from the line of Judah. So this is why this history is described for us in such a minute detail. Um, you go down to verse 20 and you see how biographical the Bible is in terms of names and dates and places. It gives you the age of Isaac at this time. And notice, if you will, verse 20, it says, And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. So the union between Rebekah and Isaac, which is described in such tremendous detail in chapter 24, is that special union through which Jacob will come. And at the time he took Rebekah as his wife, the Bible gives us his exact age, he was 40 years old. And it goes on in verse 20 and it gives Rebekah's lineage. It says in verse 20, concerning Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. So here's what Abraham's family tree looks like. Abraham had a brother. His brother's name was Nahor. Nahor had a wife whose name was Milcah, and through Milcah came Nahor's children. One of those children is Bethuel, the eighth child born from that union, and from Bethuel comes Isaac's wife, Rebekah. So God is sovereignly, providentially putting all of the pieces together ultimately to lead to Jesus Christ. You have now, going down into verse 21, you have Isaac's intercession because we have a crisis. It says in verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. You know, this subject of barrenness, uh, the women unable to become pregnant, That's a dominant theme in the book of Genesis. That goes all the way back to Genesis 11, verse 30, where we learned of Sarai, Abraham's wife, Abram's wife. It says Sarai was barren and she had no children. And of course, God, as we have studied, had to do a a supernatural work whereby she would become pregnant through Abraham. And if that didn't happen, we wouldn't have... And Isaac. And Isaac senses in his life, or he sees in his life, the same crisis. And what does Isaac do? I mean, what do you do in a crisis? I'll be honest with you, when I'm in a crisis, I try to figure out how to get out of the crisis as fast as I can. I, my, in my human energy, I can manipulate events and things and people in my favor, to get me out of the crisis. And then when the arm of the flesh, which is can only accomplish so much, when the arm of the flesh falls short, I just say, well, as a last resort, 
I guess I'm going to have to pray. When God is looking for us in our moment of crisis, whatever it is, to come to him not as a last resort in prayer, but as a first resort. I'm reminded of Daniel chapter 2, where the decree was given by Nebuchadnezzar to all of the wise men in Babylon, which would include Daniel as a teenager. That unless these wise men can tell me the dream I had last night and its meaning, they'll all die. Now, you think you have a difficult boss to work with? How would you like that on your lap? Don't just interpret the dream for me. Tell me what the dream was. And the more the wise men said, well, just give us the dream and we'll interpret it, the more Nebuchadnezzar said, let's see how wise you really are. Tell me what the dream was. And, oh, by the way, if you don't do that, I'm not saying you lose your job, you'll lose your head. Now, that's a crisis. And in Daniel 2, as you study it, the very first thing Daniel did is he went to prayer. That's what God wants us to do in the midst of a crisis. God came through for Daniel and told him what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was, and here's what the dream means. And the end of Daniel 2 is simply a praise to God in heaven by Daniel to God because God reveals the mysteries. It's interesting to me that Isaac, in the midst of this crisis, immediately goes to prayer. And I say, Lord, I want to be more like Isaac. I want to be more like Daniel. Jesus, as he was getting ready to teach on prayer, said this in Luke 18, verse 1. This is a translation here from the King James Version. It says, he spoke a parable unto them to this end, that men always ought to pray and to not faint. Other versions say men ought to pray and not lose heart. You know, it is so easy in our world to lose heart. Our country is losing heart. People in our economy are losing heart. Families are losing heart. Marriages are losing heart. Churches are losing heart. And it's so easy in the midst of daily life to be discouraged. And Jesus says men ought not to faint, but they ought to pray. And from that statement, he tells the story of the woman that kept petitioning the judge over and over again for justice. And this particular judge was no God lover at all. But finally, the judge just gave her what she wanted because she wouldn't leave him alone. She just kept asking and asking and asking. And the parable sort of ends with if if an unjust judge is going to respond to requests in that way, how much more will your God in heaven, whose character is perfect, not respond to his own children? So Isaac, like Daniel, his his first resort here is to pray. And guess what? God answers the prayer. Do you believe God answers prayer? One of the great things you can do as a Christian is just to keep a journal of prayers. Because it's so interesting to come back to that list maybe six months to a year later and see the hand of God. 
If you don't keep some kind of journal or list, what will happen is you'll forget what God did and you'll just move on to the next crisis. Or God says, in your next crisis, review the list and see how I delivered you from past crises. And since I am the same yesterday, today, and forever, will I not deliver you from the current crisis? It's the providential hand of God. So Isaac is in prayer and God answers the prayer. It says the Lord answered him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. I'm reminded of James chapter 5, verse 16, which says the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You know, we will put the emphasis on anything and everything other than prayer. Crises nationally, crisis individually, we will, in our human selves, our natural selves, try to manipulate things. And God is saying, save yourself the trouble. Come to me first and submit to my will. You know, Isaac is doing something Abraham did not do. You remember Genesis 16, where... Abraham and Sarah developed a plan. And what was the plan? The plan was, we've got to help God out. I can't get pregnant, so Abraham, you go and impregnate Hagar. And from that union, that unholy union of works, not trusting God, not depending upon God, Ishmael came forth. The Ishmaelites being enemies to the nation of Israel right to the present hour in many respects prophetically. And how all of that could have been subverted had they just kept walking with God. You'll notice that Isaac seems to have learned his lesson. I'm not sure how he was taught the lesson. Maybe his father Abraham sat him down and inculcated in him the necessity to wait upon God, to depend upon God, and not to solve problems in the energy of the flesh through human scheming and manipulation. But you'll notice that Isaac doesn't do what Abraham did. He doesn't find a Hagar to impregnate. He goes right to the Lord. And the Lord answered the prayer. And Rebekah conceived. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14 says, If we ask according to his will, he hears, he hears us. He doesn't promise to answer every prayer I pray, but you start praying in the will of God and according to the mind of God, and it was obviously God's will for this nation to continue. Because if this nation doesn't continue, we don't have a Savior, Jesus Christ. He prayed directly in the will of God, and God answered the prayer And Rebecca conceived. In fact, so great was this conception that she had twins. (laughs) It's interesting how God many times in prayer will pray for something. I've seen this in my own life. I'll ask the Lord for something. And I don't always get the answer when I want it. But when I get the answer, it many times is greater than what I even asked for. It reminds me of Solomon who prayed to the Lord for wisdom so that he might govern God's people. And 
the Lord was so thrilled, he was so impressed with Solomon's prayer that he gave Solomon not just wisdom, but other things he hadn't even asked for in terms of riches and a long life and things of that nature. God many times answers above and beyond even what we asked for initially. So she didn't just get pregnant. She got twins. And these two twins are struggling within her womb. And the conflict between the two twins in the womb is so intense, she has to go to the Lord for it. She has to seek God's wisdom. And you see her doing that in verse 22. It says, But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? Many, many Bible commentators will tell you that she, Rebecca, thought she was going to die because of this struggle. I mean, the, the intensity that was happening in her womb was obviously... Abnormal, it was obviously supernatural, and she goes immediately, like Isaac, to the Lord in prayer. And you see there at the end of verse 22, her prayer, it doesn't really record the details, but it says, so she went to inquire of the Lord. If we ask according to his will, he hears us. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Men ought not to... Faint, but they ought to pray. And Isaac and Rebecca are certainly a couple that knows how to walk that out. You know, there are many times in my life, and my wife and I experience a level of warfare that's so abnormal that we have to just stop for a minute. We have to say, you know what, this is supernatural what's happening here. I mean, this level of warfare is abnormal. It's so intense that let's just stop everything. And let's just go to the Lord in prayer. And seek his guidance. Seek his insight. Seek his encouragement. And this is what Isaac and Rebecca are modeling for us. Stop using prayer as a last resort and use it as a first resort. And start understanding that when you walk with God, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of this dark world. And as you walk with God, there will be things that will come against you that you can't even begin to understand why it's happening. And the only peace you will have in it at the end of the day is just going to the Lord for his direction. Or his insight. And so you see her praying. So she went to inquire of the Lord. Now look here. She gets a prophecy. The prophecy is given in verse 23. Where the Lord now explains the conflict of the twins in her womb. Verse 23 says, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. This is set up in what we call Hebrew parallelism. 
English poetry rhymes sounds. That's not how Hebrew poetry works. It rhymes ideas. The two lines have to be understood together because the second line is supplementing or adding to what's in the first line. And this first one is something that we call synonymous Hebrew parallelism, where the second line repeats what's in the first line, but in different words. And you see that taking place through about half of verse 23. And then you have two more lines. That looks to me like either Hebrew parallelism or it looks like what is called, if I remember right, antithetic Hebrew parallelism, where the second line repeats something in the first line but adds a detail. And when you're dealing with a pastor or a preacher or a teacher who understands Hebrew parallelism, he will not get four points out of verse 23. He will get two points out of verse 23 because he understands that in Hebrew parallelism, the Jews rhymed thoughts rather than ideas. You have to study the two lines together to get the central point. So line one, God says, in answer to Rebecca's prayer, two nations are in your womb. Now what two nations are those? We discover that they are Israel and Edom. And here is the second line, synonymous Hebrew parallelism, which repeats what's in the first line, but with different verbiage. Two peoples will be separated from your body or from your womb. So the first major point of two in Genesis 25, verse 23, is the reason there's a conflict in your womb to the point where you think it's going to kill you is what's happening in your womb are the progenitors of two different nations that are going to be at war throughout redemptive history, Israel and Edom. And then you get to line three in the prophecy, and it says one people shall be stronger than the other. Israel, through Jacob, is going to get the upper hand over Edom through Esau. And then line four sort of repeats the same concept, but maybe adds a little bit more detail. And it says the older shall serve the younger. Well, who is the older? It's Esau. Who is the younger? It's Jacob. But here the prophecy is Israel will actually enslave Edom. I hope you understand that in the ancient Near East, things never worked that way, ever. It was always the rights of the firstborn. The firstborn was always in the place of supremacy. The firstborn was always in the place of primacy. And here God says what's going to happen is the exact opposite. Israel, the secondborn, will enslave Edom, the firstborn. Now, this is a theme that goes all the way through the book of Genesis. God reversing the natural order of things. You know that something is a theme as you're working your way through a book of the Bible 
because the concept keeps coming up over and over and over and over again. I mentioned this way back when, I don't know, 30 years ago, when we were in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. The selection of Abel over Cain, the selection of Seth over Cain, is a reversal of what's normal in the ancient Near East. We said when we were there back in Genesis 4 that this begins a selection of the younger over the older pattern. Abel over Cain. Despite the fact that Cain was born first. Seth over Cain. Despite the fact that Cain was born first. And the pattern continues. Shem over Japheth. Isaac over Ishmael. Right here, here it is again. Jacob over Esau. Judah and Joseph over their brothers. Ephraim over Manasseh. This keeps happening as God is working in Jewish history. And because it keeps happening, it's a theme. And what's the theme? You cannot box God in by human standards. You put God in a box, he's going to come right out. Because there's nothing impossible for God. And God says, yeah, you know, I know the world works a certain way, but I work differently because I created the world. Now, this book, the book of Genesis, is going to be read by the Joshua generation, and they're going to read this, and they're going to have to go into Canaan and fight the Canaanites and slaughter them, even though the Canaanites are bigger and more numerous. And they're going to be tempted to... Analyze the battle through normal ways of warfare. And they're going to think to themselves, we're going to get killed. And God says, you're not going to get killed because I don't work through the normal rules of warfare. You will win. And in fact, before Joshua fought a single battle, God told Joshua that you're already a winner. Don't worry about how the world works. I work differently. Now, I hope some of this is ministering to you because a lot of you, and myself included, are typically caught into problems and the world system will tell you there's no way out. And you just have to remember this pattern. That God works independently of the world system. This is why we are not to be conformed to the pattern of the world. I mean, if I were to spend my life following the pattern of the world, I guarantee you this much, I wouldn't be standing up here doing this. God only knows what I'd be doing. I'm afraid to even think about it. But you have to begin to walk with the Lord, and you have to say to the Lord, you know what, Lord, Uh, I think you're leading me to do this, and the world says it's crazy. My family says it's crazy. My church says it's crazy. And God says, well, really what would be crazy if you didn't listen to me? Because I control the circumstances of the world and I will work independently of the world system. And when he says here, the elder will serve the younger, it's a prophecy. Charles Ryrie summarizes it this way. 
The struggle within Rebecca's womb foreshadowed the struggle between two peoples. The Edomites and the Israelites of which Esau and Jacob were the progenitors. This is a prophecy of warfare that goes right on through the Bible that will take place over and over again. For example, Jesus in one of his Jewish trials was tried by a man named Herod who turned Christ over amongst other leaders in Israel to the Romans for execution. It might shock you to learn that Herod was actually an Edomite. So this prophecy is going to be fulfilled numerous times right down to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is why I love the study of Bible prophecy. No other holy book does this, reveals history in advance. Jesus in John 13 verse 19 said, From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur you might believe that I am he. I'm staking my whole reputation on prophecy, Jesus says to the disciples there in the upper room. John 14, 29, he says, Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you might believe. In Isaiah 40 through 48, God through Isaiah says, I predict things, I'll move my hand in history so that those predictions will be fulfilled in real time. And which of your idols can do that? None of them can. But God says, I can. As I've mentioned to you before, that's why I'm a fan of this particular book by Dr. John Walverd, Every Prophecy of the Bible. I mean, do you want a prophetic awareness of the scripture and the things that it is anticipating in advance? That would be the book to read. And the prophecy moves into now the birth of the twins, verses um, 24 through 26. And we can break down verses 24 through 26 a little bit more. But it says there in verse 24 concerning the birth, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Exactly what God said would happen, happened. Verse 24. The first one out of the womb is Esau. Verse 25, it says, Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Esau is the firstborn. Um, His name basically means red, ruddy, reddish. That is an expression only used of David later on in biblical history. 1 Samuel 16, verse 12 of, of David, it says, So he went and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and handsome in appearance. One chapter later, 1 Samuel 17, verse 42, says, When the Philistines looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy, but with a handsome appearance. 
And he was red all over Esau, like a hairy garment. And that's what the name Esau means. It means hairy. I'm glad they didn't call him Dirty Harry, or there would be some copyright issues there, I guess. But the nation, or Edom, that would come forth from Esau gets the name Red. And the individual name for Esau comes from this word, Harry. And then Jacob is born, second son. Verse 26, afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. But when did he hold on to Esau's heel? In the womb of Rebekah. Afterwards, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called uh, Jacob, I think is pronounced Yaakov in Hebrew, second son. In the womb, he took his brother's heel. Uh, you'll find a reference to that in the book of Hosea, chapter 12 and verse 3. It says, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel. Esau's name comes from his appearance, hairy and red, Jacob's name comes from his actions in the womb. Yaakov basically coming from the same root as heel, heel holder. And then you can translate this further as trickster or supplanter. That's a revelation of his character and what he would do as we will be studying later on in the biblical story. Do you see at least this much the impossibility of holding to a Christian worldview and supporting abortion on demand? That you cannot do that? Genesis twenty-five twenty-three says, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. If you look again at verse 26, it says, Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel so that his name was called Jacob. This is pre-birth, prenatal. This is happening. This heel holding. As I mentioned before, Luke is a physician. Colossians 4, verse 14 of Luke, it says, the beloved physician. It is interesting that in Luke's gospel, Luke deals with or covers the prenatal activity of Christ's earthly mother, Mary, and John the Baptist, as Jesus and John the Baptist are in the wombs of their mothers. Luke 1.41 says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke 1 verse 44 says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy in my womb. The word for baby is the Greek word brephos. 
And then you go to Luke 2, verse 12, which is talking about Jesus already born. And you know what the Bible does there? It uses the exact same Greek word. Luke 2, 12, it says, And he will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby, that's brephos, wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Luke 2.16 says, They came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby, that's Brephos, as he lay in the manger. If the Bible means what it says and says what it means, the word baby is applied to both preborn and born. And Luke, a physician, would obviously be interested in this. Because this is part of his occupation. That's why he's covering these prenatal activities. The same kind of prenatal activities that you're seeing right here in Genesis 25 verse 23 and Genesis 25 verse 26. Luke also records the words of Christ concerning the invasion of Israel by the Romans which would happen about 30 years or 40 years or so after this prophecy that Jesus gave recorded by Luke was fulfilled. It says Luke 19.41, when he, that's Jesus, approached Jerusalem, this is Palm Sunday, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. There is a covenant penalty for the nation of Israel nationally rejecting Jesus as their king. A foreign power is going to come against you. And then Jesus starts to describe what this foreign power is going to do. Verse 44, they will level you to the ground, watch this, and your children within you. See that? That's Dr. Luke telling us again that there's no distinction between born and unborn. They will level you to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Moses said all the way back in Deuteronomy 28 to the nation of Israel, if you reject the king of God's choosing, here come the covenant consequences. Here comes divine discipline nationally upon Israel. And Josephus, the historian, writing just a little after the time of Christ, the way he describes this Roman invasion says that's exactly what happened. The temple caught on fire. The gold in the temple melted and oozed down between the bricks and dried there. And the Roman soldiers took the temple apart brick by brick, just returned from the land of Israel. And guess what? The temple is torn apart brick by brick to get their hands on the gold just Exactly the scenario Jesus describes here. They'll hem you in on every side. Uh, the Romans came under Titus and they built uh, an encampment around the city of Jerusalem where the Jews could not get out. In fact, the early church around A.D. 66 was given a divine prophecy 
that we know about from extra-biblical writings. I believe it's Eusebius in his ecclesiastical history records this, that you Christians need to get out of Jerusalem now. Because if you don't, it's going to be too late. And fortunately, many Christians escape, but not the unbelieving Jews. And Josephus says this, the Romans, when they came, took the pregnant Jewish women and tore open their wombs to kill or to strangle the child preborn to eradicate the name of Israel from the face of the earth forever. And that's what Jesus said would happen. They will level you to the ground and your children within you. Dr. Luke saying there isn't any difference between born and unborn. The founders of Sugarland Bible Church put together our Sugarland Bible Church position statements. The position statements talk about the angle that we teach from. These are not necessarily requirements to join the church, but if you come to this church, here's the angle we will teach from. And number one, not number five, number six, number one, is the sanctity of life. We believe that the fetus from the moment of conception is a person. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 18. We also believe that all persons are created in the image of God regardless of age, health, function, and or condition of dependency. Sugarland Bible Church does not stand on quality of life. We stand on sanctity of life. And there's a difference. Quality of life says a human has, a va- has value depending on what it can do. If it's healthy. If it's productive. But what if it's feeble? And if it's old, or if it's too young, or if it's infirm, well, they don't have quality. The world system we're living in says that life is of less consequence. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that all life is sacred. Because human beings, regardless of handicap, deficiency, blindness, disability, Old age are made in God's image. And this becomes the basis by which you treat people. There are people out there, I know they do it to you because they do it to me. They will completely tick you off and get on your nerves. And you will want to respond to them with both barrels. And at some point you have to stop and you have to wait and say, you know what? If I unleash on this person... I'm coming against a being that bears God's image. That person has value, regardless of how they're acting at any given moment. The Bible is pro-life. Now, I understand that when you talk in this way, people are put under immediate condemnation because in our culture of rampant abortion on demand... There are many that have had abortions or paid for abortions or forced someone to have abortions. And to those in that predicament, I simply say the grace of God is available. Forgiveness is available. 
Because Jesus died on a cross to forgive all sins. Abortion is not the unpardonable sin. In fact, what you'll see in the Bible is three of God's choicest of servants have blood on their hands. And who were they? Moses, David, and Paul. Do you realize what little of the Bible we would have if God hadn't worked through Moses, David, and Paul? And yet all of them were murderers. And yet God not only forgave that sin of murder, which is an attack against an image bearer, a fellow human being. Not only did God forgive the sin, but God said, I'm actually going to use you in ministry. And so if you find yourself in a situation where you've been involved with some horrific sin, including abortion, don't somehow think that, oh oh my goodness, I must be beyond the grace of God. I mean, if God had worked that way in David's life, we, we could just get rid of the book of Psalms, right? If God had worked that way in Moses' life, we could just get rid of the first five books of the, the Bible. If God had worked that way in Paul's life, we could just get rid of the 13 Pauline letters. God, at the end of the day, is a God of justice and righteousness, but he is also a God of grace. The grace of God covers all sins. And yet, we're living in a society right now that is pushing abortion like I've never seen. The overturn of Roe versus Wade by the Dobbs decision has drawn the lines in the sand in a way that I could have never foreseen. Where California, Proposition 1, has just voted and enshrined into its constitution what looks to me like not just abortion on demand up to the ninth month, but borderline, if not complete, infanticide. Where the legal rights of a born child are not protected. I'm very thankful that I live in Texas. Because Texas put on its books a trigger law that said if abortion and Roe versus Wade, if Roe versus Wade is over overturned, Texas will illegalize abortion in the state of Texas. And I'm here to tell you that abortion, as I speak right now, is illegal in the state of Texas. In fact, you just drive by Houston there, one of the biggest Planned Parenthoods. What a a deceptive name that is. Planned Parenthood. How innocent that sounds. And it is an absolute thrill to see that the place is closed, the, the, the windows are boarded up, we're not in business anymore because here in Texas, we're going to follow Texas law. Amen? But the rest of the country, not everybody agrees with us. And you have scenarios where woke corporations will take their employees wanting an abortion if that employee happens to live, live 
in Texas. And don't worry, at company expense, we'll send you over to California or New York where you can get your abortion. Because those are what they call abortion sanctuary cities. That's what they're calling them. And this is the kind of sick, debauched world that we're living in. And yet the Bible, as far as I can tell, is crystal clear on the subject. I don't see any ambiguity or wiggle room whatsoever. If you believe in the Bible, that makes you pro-life. And you advocate for pro-life. And you push for pro-life. Because that's what God says. And I'm thankful that I'm standing in a church that had that worldview going back to the foundation of the church around 1983 and actually put this into our founding documents as a church. So I am completely justified in bringing the subject up because this is one of our position statements, which is a description of the angle that we teach from. Sugarland Bible Church, we'll put it on the record right now if it's not there already, is pro-life. We seek laws and legislation everywhere that protect the unborn. And for a young woman that finds herself in a position where she has an unwanted pregnancy, we see many other options on the table other than slaughter, because that's what abortion is. It's a slaughter. Every abortion ends a heartbeat. The medical facts say that. The biblical facts say that. And you can even see it right here with the personalities, the the temperaments of these two nations struggling in Rebecca's womb, one even grabbing the heel of his brother. And that's where Jacob's name comes from. The paragraph ends like you would expect a biography to end with some numerical information. And we have Isaac's age when these two were born. It says Isaac was 60 years old when she, Rebecca, gave birth to them. Earlier his age was given at the time they were married, 40. Now it's age 60. You get the idea concerning the information here that this is not Veggie Tales. This is not Jack and the Beanstalk. This is not fiction. This is not fable. Because the youth of today aren't being taught history like this. They think they're getting it from the school system. They think that what we're dealing with here is religion. But if I really want to get history... I'll go to my history teacher for that. You religious people just keep talking about your religion. Nonsense. This is history that we're reading about here. Real people in real time with real issues, with real problems, and God is speaking. And so that's sort of the conclusion of the story of the birth of Jacob and Esau. And next week, We'll take a look at verses 27 through 34, which is the selling of the birthright. I made the point today that abortion, as horrific as it is, is not the unpardonable sin. 
Well, then, pray tell, what is the unpardonable sin? Here's the unpardonable sin. Having the Holy Spirit convict a person over and over again throughout their life, telling them they need Jesus as their Savior. Convicting, 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 convicting. And the person just saying, I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't want that. I won't have anything to do with that. And then going to their grave in that condition. That's the unpardonable sin. The only unpardonable sin is not taking Christ as your Savior. Is not receiving by way of faith the free gift that Jesus offers. Now you go to your grave without ever having accepted that gift. You've passed into the eternal realm and there isn't hope for such a person. That's unpardonable. Everything else is pardonable. And so that becomes the segue by which we preach the gospel, which means good news, that Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago and paid for our past, present, and future sins, which would even include something like abortion. It's all forgiven. All we have to do is receive what he has done in our place as a gift. That's it. And how do you receive what... Jesus has done for us 2,000 years ago as a free gift. There's only one way to receive a gift from God. That is to believe in the one he has sent. Believe means to trust. At the point of personal conviction, a person in their heart, because it's a matter of volition or privacy between the lost sinner and God, The person in their heart trusts Jesus by himself for their eternity and the safekeeping of their soul. The person in so doing is recognized that nobody can help you other than Jesus in this regard. A pastor cannot help you. A church cannot help you. Your family cannot help you. Your friends cannot help you. Only Jesus can help you with this. And it's a recognition of that, and you trust in Christ. Well, you know, gee, Pastor, I'm I'm sort of trusting in my own good works. Oh, so you're your own Savior then. I mean, if you're trusting in yourself, you're your own Savior, and you really don't need Jesus. That's blasphemous. God won't forgive that. He won't forgive that attitude going to one's death with that mindset. And so our exhortation to anybody that's in the room, anybody listening online, anybody listening to the archive after the fact, is to make life's most important decision, which is to place your faith in Jesus now. Today is the day of salvation. And be a newborn child of God. What a great way to enter the Christmas season. Celebrating the physical birth of Jesus as a brand new born child of God. And that's the gospel. You can trust in Christ now as I'm speaking. If anybody needs more information on it, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for this paragraph. 
and yet how it speaks to us in our day and our culture and gives us so much of a blueprint of the future that you have for us and for humanity. Help us to walk out these things this week by way of faith. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.